It's the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Monday, March 22nd. We begin with a look at a new proposed bill to take aim at hate symbols in our province. We speak with the MLA behind the bill, Thomas Dang, NDP representative for Edmonton Southwest, and ask him what the potential legislation would look like. Then we focus on the current vaccination rollout program in our province, which includes a delayed time frame between the first shot and the second. We discuss the pros and cons of the delay with Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. It's tax season, and this year the Canada Revenue Agency is going digital to search for individuals with unreported income. We speak with tax educator Evelyn Jacks about how the CRA is now monitoring social media influencers. And finally, we look at the issue of brain drain in the Canadian tech industry. We'll speak with the CEO of a major player in the industry about just how much of an issue this is in our country and how the pandemic has made the situation worse. 709 on Mornings with Sue and Andy. Tiki torches at rallies and a Confederate flag put up in place of a Canadian flag. These are a few of the most recent happenings. So it's time to speak out against symbols of intolerance. That's according to Thomas Dang, the NDP's MLA in Edmonton Southwest. And he's with us now to talk about this proposed bill. Good morning to you, Minister. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for taking the time. Well, your motion calls on the UCP government to commit to developing legislation that would outlaw symbols of hate in public spaces. How do you think this type of legislation should be approached? Well, first and foremost, I think that I want to offer my condolences uh, to the woman in Calgary who was beaten and and her job was ripped uh, Mm -hmm. up over this weekend. I think that's something that every single Albertan should be condemning right now. Um, I think that when we're talking about legislation to attack and uh, about attacks and racist symbols, uh, we need to be looking at what other jurisdictions are doing. We need to be looking at making sure that every single Albertan, uh, racialized Albertan, uh, feels safe in, in, in their community. And, and, and I know that BC is doing some work on that right now, but, but we've called here for a bipartisan committee so that we can all work together with the UCP and, and the opposition party to, to uh, have that conversation and, and try to come up with a, a team plan. So what does this look like, Minister? How do you present this and how does it look moving forward? Uh, so what's going to happen is we're going to present a motion today. And if the UCP government uh, agrees to allow us to debate it, what will happen is this afternoon we'll debate that for an hour. And hopefully that will spark the conversation and, and get agreement from the Conservatives that, that we should be having uh, discussions on racism. Minister, you mentioned other jurisdictions. Can you give us a, some sort of an outline of, as to how something like this is set up in, in other provinces, uh, those that actually have legislation? Yeah, so, so British Columbia right now it, it has an anti-racism advisory framework uh, that they're working on to, to tackle issues like this. Um, and of course, we've seen in, in the United States uh, where where the attacks have been very prevalent in the last several months um, and even just the last week where we saw the horrific killing of, of so many Asian, uh, Asian Americans that uh, they're also looking at these types of frameworks in, in terms of how do we want to uh, stand up against racism and, and how do we want to recognize what are symbols that are being used to instill fear and intimidation and, and, and to threaten people. So is your plan or is your hope then that we might outlaw, like, for example, the tiki torches or, you know, the uh, the, the flag that was raised here in Calgary, a Canadian flag replaced and, and the one that was that was put up? Is, it, is, that, is that your hope that we would remove or, or, you know, outlaw some of these symbols specifically? Yeah, I think to be really clear, it's not about the, the torch that's in your backyard to keep the mosquitoes away. Mm-hmm. It's about when these symbols are being used as uh, intimidation tools, right? So, so if a torch is being used at a rally uh, to to threaten Asian people or racialized people, I, I think that's what we're talking about, and that's the type of thing that we need to to have conversation about banning and, and getting rid of. You know, when you talk about government, sometimes you talk about you know way down the road and time frames. 
What kind of a time frame or a timeline do you think would uh, suit this uh, this bill, and, and how quickly could something come together? You know, I think we need to act quickly, right? We, we, we've seen this rise in anti anti Asian sentiment. We've seen this rise in racism, and and we need to work now. Uh, really, if if we don't work now, then then we're letting people who are being attacked in Alberta down. We're letting we're letting our communities and our neighbors down. And have you had much feedback in terms of, uh, you know, people who are looking for something like this? Are you hearing from the community on this? And, and, and people are asking to, to let's do something about these symbols of hate and violence and intolerance in here in Alberta? Absolutely. Um, the, the, uh, the response has been overwhelming. People have been messaging me uh, from really all over the country, even saying that they're, they're so inspired by this. Uh, I even had um, a young lady message me just a couple of days ago saying that, she wanted to look into setting up an Asian safe walk program because she was so worried about uh, some of these uh, symbols that were being put out there and, and how they were being used to intimidate um, racialized people. So, so when we're talking about these programs, it's not a hypothetical threat, right? It's people actually are afraid of what's going to happen if, if this type of racism is allowed to continue. You know, it, it's not hypothetical, as you mentioned, but a lot of these acts are done you know, uh, under darkness, or, or certainly they could even be done online to a certain extent um, as far as the promote of hate. So it might be hard to find the culprits. Would you suggest that perhaps we need some kind of a task force of, to, to kind of be on this for investigations? I, I think it's something that uh, we're certainly open to discussing. I, I think it's something that um, that's why I think it's so important the government accepts this motion and, and, and starts a bipartisan committee because these are the types of questions we need to ask and, and that's the type of thing we need to work with the government on. It's going to be a tough one for the UCP to say no to. So are you expecting or have you had any response at this point yet as to whether you know both parties can work together and move forward with this? You know, I, I, I'm optimistic uh, uh, in terms of what we've heard from the UCP is um, they haven't done enough in the past, right? I know their, their Minister of Culture and Multiculturalism um, pointed to a statement she made six months ago about uh, racism rather than repudiating racism today uh, in, in, in one of the recent press conferences. And, and that's something I think is disappointing, but I'm, I'm optimistic always that, that they'll do the right thing and support this motion. Well, thank you so much for telling us all about it this morning. We appreciate it. Perfect. Thank you very much. Thank you. That is NDP MLA Thomas Dang from Edmonton Southwest. And it's that interesting discussion, as I mentioned, you know, a lot of times they kick the can down the road and maybe by 2026 mm-hmm. we get something together. Uh, but the problem is happening right now. But uh, Sue, I find that a lot of these groups, it seems to me anyway, uh, that you see from outside looking in this shield, if you will, of saying, well, you're taking away my right to free speech. Yeah. And I think the parameters have to be made clear. And I mean, clear uh, common sense sometimes should be clear. Uh, but it's it not isn't. always. So yeah. you know, you'd have to have a full lexicon of, of uh, symbols and definitions, and perhaps that's organic, and it can change year from year, mm-hmm. group to group. I mean, you know, anybody who's carrying a tiki torch or waving a Confederate flag, they know full well what they're doing. Well, and, and I love, and they know what the intention is. I love and so con- do all the rest of us, right? The confusion surrounding the tiki torches, and then yeah, like like uh, you know, the MLA said. They're in your backyard. And You're using them for the summer barbecue. Uh, it's in the context of, of carrying this tor- torch in front of a, a legislature or, or city hall for that mm-hmm. walking in a, rally, in a parade, if you will, marching uh, with a lit torch. That represents um, something. And yeah, if you are carrying a tiki torch and you don't know that, you need to do a little you know, digging and, and a little yeah. research as to why it's an issue. Well, you know, and, and in the end, I think that, yeah, the discussion and uh, like you say, UCP's kind of got their back in a corner because you want to be you want to be the government in power. 
to say no, the timing isn't right. Do you want to be the government in power where we have such a diverse uh, province saying, you know, uh, you know, we, we do a lot of good in this province and we mm-hmm. want to protect everyone, but it was stop it right there. Uh, your concerns don't matter to us. So I think something will come of it, just how quickly and, and what it'll look like. I didn't see any imagery. Was there anything from the, the big anti-lockdown rally, whatever you want to call it this weekend uh, that just happened here in Calgary? Was there any sort of imagery that, that came out of that in terms of the torches, the flags, et cetera? Yeah, well, we actually got a text on it as well. Um, it, it was a case of, uh, on social media, the greatest takeaway I had were citizens saying, why did the police not step in? Because exactly, it was a worldwide yeah. rally mm-hmm. in the Calgary version of it. Apparently, Maskless, yeah. gathering, yeah, it's, and... It's very interesting. Um, and you will, we'll maybe delve more into it, not just today, but maybe a little later this afternoon as well, because it was it was happening. But I think more and more people are just kind of turning a blind eye saying we want to ignore it because if we pay are attention they, to or it. Are we fed up that we're all following the rules and then groups like this kind of walk through a mall or gather at a big giant rally and, and, and are just, you know, adding fuel to the fire, really? That could, be the, that could be the point. But I think maybe a little bit of COVID fatigue, as you mentioned, kind of plays into it for sure. 7.20, it's mornings with Sue and Andy. Delaying second doses of COVID-19 vaccines should reduce case numbers in the short term, but in the longer term, Things are a little more complicated. This is according to a new joint study conducted by McGill and Princeton Universities. To explain, we're joined by Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Good morning to you, Dr. J. Good morning. Well, it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that it's short-term gain, but not as cut and dried when it comes to the long term. Is that right? Yeah, this is this is really complex. I mean, we, we know for most vaccines, a second dose is a booster dose. So if you get a single dose, you will get immunity. Uh, The rates won't be perfect, and it will tend to wane over time. The second dose, the booster dose, is the one that really takes it on home, where you get those rates into the 90s. And that that immunity, in theory, should last a long time, or at least the entire, say, a year, if that's a long term right now, until the next round of vaccines. So, Doctor Jay- right, so, uh, so we don't know uh, if this is good or bad uh, or what the delay should be and when this second one should be. If there's any good news so far is that a, a, uh, somewhat of a delay, so around that three-month mark might be the sweet spot, whereas we thought initially that it had to be very quickly in after the second one, two weeks or four weeks. Now we know if you wait three months, you're going to hit a sweet spot, and that will give you that much more prolonged immunity. Okay, that's good news, because I was going to say that's the thing that I think everybody's concerned about, right? There's been so many mixed messages about, you know, when we should get it, when we're supposed to get it, when we think we might get it. So that's good news then. Yeah, so this, so for clarity on that, and again, it was very confusing up front because there was no science. We did not know, literally. But as uh, different countries have deployed different methods of delivery, they've had to delay. Like if we, if you run out of supply, you have to delay the second shot. But statistics have borne out that actually that was a strategy that actually is more effective. So that quick second dose is not as effective as a delayed one, but you can't delay in that, you can't delay forever, right? Because and that's the the where it gets very very complicated. So somebody, if uh, say a group of the population only get a single dose, never get a booster dose, is that going to be problematic in the future? Will you only be partially immunized? Will you be able to spread the virus a little easier? Will variants pop up in that population because they're only partially immunized? And that's where it gets really, really complicated. Not just complicated in those. I'm wondering if I could throw one more at you. Does it matter the type of vaccine? Because we have so many different types now. 
Yeah, well, again, here's a, a good piece of news, although it may never happen in Alberta. They now have studies showing that if you got an, the AstraZeneca or AZ vaccine first and you were boosted with a Pfizer or Moderna, the effects are extremely good. So, so in theory, there may be a bit of a mixed match. Unfortunately, I think what's going to happen in Alberta is that if you start with AZ, you will get AZ second because they're trying to keep the Moderna and Pfizer mm-hmm. for the higher risk groups. And again, that's, that's wise strategy. That's not a, a bad decision. So we never may be able to mix and match until our supplies are so overabundant that literally you, you can, as an individual, choose the vaccine you want. Right now, you're sort of slotted into uh, into groups and again i'm not saying that's not wise it's wise you 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 target the highest risk population with the best vaccines first and then it sort of plays out thereafter thank you so much dr j always appreciate your perspective okay you betcha and your knowledge for sure that is dr ted jablonski (laughs) our on-call family physician thanks dr j 649 on mornings with sue and andy tax auditors have new digital tools at their disposal as the Canada Revenue Revenue Agency takes to social media to find influencers who may not be reporting income. Evelyn Jacks, author, CPA, and educator, is with us to talk all about it. Good morning to you, Evelyn. Good morning. How are you today? Good. Thank you for taking the time with us. For those who don't spend much time on social media, can you break down what an influencer is and, and what they might be doing online? Certainly. Well, influencers are actually uh, earning advertising uh, revenue through subscriptions and product promotions that they do on YouTube or Instagram or Twitch. And these are amongst groups of people who can actually make a lot of money. Uh, there are other platform economies such as Airbnb, uh, that's called the sharing economy or the gig economy where you've got sort of short-term uh, work through ClickWorker or CrowdSource and peer-to-peer selling. And that can include things like eBay and Etsy and Craigslist. And so these are all new social and uh, media platforms that the government is cracking down on. They want to make sure that you are, in fact, reporting income therefrom. So, Evelyn, what exactly are they looking for? Like, I'm not an influencer per se. Uh, You know, I know that's a job for some people. But if I'm selling stuff on Facebook Marketplace, am I supposed to, to claim all of that money? Well, you are. Uh, and in fact, many people don't realize that even barter transactions are subject to tax. They have a value. And whether or not you've got actual money exchanging hands or uh, blips on the new economy in terms of electronic funds, uh, you're, this is still taxable income to you. So what do you, what do you think as far as what their focus will be? And I guess it's a kind of a looking into a crystal ball mm. since this is something that they're just starting right now because it's 2021 and people do a lot online. But for example, if I decide to sell a baby crib for 200 bucks and I maybe, as, as Sue mentioned, sell casually, are they going to be, you know, going through with a fine tooth comb or is it more so habitual, uh, you know, sellers? <laughs> Yes, uh, you know, there are some specific rules in in the Income Tax Act when it comes to selling smaller items. For example, there's a $1,000 rule that you don't have to report the um, smaller furniture items that you are uh, selling. But once it becomes over $1,000, then those types of personal use things have to be uh, reported. Uh, In addition, anytime you're making a profit, so a lot of people are buying and selling, but by the time we take off legitimate expenses, uh, home office expenses, for example, or other expenses, 
expenditures that are properly reported uh, as um, expenses off uh, self-employed income, then, of course, you're at a loss. And there has to be a reasonable expectation of profit from your activities uh, in order for you to write off any losses that you might have. So what's really important is that people familiarize themselves with the basics of filing a tax return and how you report income and expenses to make a better judgment call as to where you stand with CRA. So Evelyn, you know, let's talk about, uh, you know, it, it is tax season, obviously. So about claiming new office deductions, new medical expenses, that kind of stuff. Does mm-hmm. that Does that flag us for auditing as well? Yes, anytime you uh, have some kind of a discretionary deduction, moving expenses and childcare and medical expenses come into that group as well. In other words, the government is not getting a slip from your employer or your financial institution, which is automatically sent into them. But when you've got those kinds of discretionary deductions, then you're more uh, likely to be in an audit profile. Now, this year with home office expenses, we have a simplified method, no documentation and no forms from the employer required if you're writing off $2 a day up to $400 on your home workspace expenditures. Now, obviously, that's not a lot of money. But if you're wanting to write off more under a detailed method, uh, which means you have to keep receipts, and if you're an employee, you're going to get a form signed by your employer called a T2200F then you are in an audit profile. And so you always have to sort of weigh, in the case of the office expenditures, whether it's worthwhile for you to get yourself into that audit profile. Very interesting and super timely. Thanks for your time this morning, Evelyn. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That is Evelyn Jacks, author, CPA, and educator. You can find her online at evelynjacks.com. 609, it's Mornings with Sue and Andy. Pandemic challenges are affecting the tech sector more than we realize. Canadian tech talent is being courted and lured away by companies outside of the country. Adam Froman, the CEO and co-founder of Delvinia Tech, Delvinia Tech, joins us now to talk about retaining our Canadian talent. Good morning to you, Adam. Good morning. Well, let's break this down because we've heard of, of this being an issue. Uh, how did the pandemic kind of move it and push it uh, more further, well, further ahead than it would have without a, an international pandemic? Well, it's interesting. Uh, you know, my company, Delvinia, we're a research technology company. So we're in the thick of transforming business and, and using digital technologies to collect data. We, we have been growing at a significant rate. And, you know, the challenge that we had in terms of hiring development talent we had funded back in 2018 a study that showed about two-thirds of our graduates in computer science were leaving Canada to go to jobs in the U.S. When the pandemic hit, um, everybody, you know, a lot, of, a lot of companies stopped hiring for about six months because they were affected by, the, uh, you know, by what was it, the pandemic was doing. And, but what we found was since ever, all of the companies went remote, most Canadian companies said, well, we don't have to hire to a location anymore. We have the ability to hire this tech talent wherever they are. Mm. And we saw that first as an opportunity. What we didn't realize that we, you know, up to this point, we had been fighting the foreign uh, tech companies coming into Canada, providing much higher salaries than Canadian companies could provide. And with the pandemic ending, uh, in, in the middle of the pandemic, I'm sorry, what they were doing was they were calling the talent who was working remote and offering them jobs without ever having to leave their home. 
So while there's a shortage of tech talent in Canada and it continues to grow while, you know, a lot of jobs were lost during the pandemic, there was still a lot of tech talent jobs there. But we're, we're fighting a battle on many fronts in terms of keeping our talent, especially not going to an office. But now we are fighting foreign companies hiring our talent and them staying in Canada. So, Adam, how the heck do you battle that? Because, I mean, it, moving forward, even after the pandemic, when we're through the other side of things, you know, if somebody doesn't have to move but can work for a company in another country and make far better money, how do you fight against that? Well, that, that's the dilemma that most tech CEOs and my peers are facing. Most of our companies now that we've been into the pandemic, we're back on triple-digit growth. We're all expanding internationally. We've had to figure out how to attract talent based on the quality of the opportunity that we're offering. And we're also looking to see, you know, if the government is looking for a recovery to quickly get through the post-pandemic with all this debt we're going to face, how can they support us to be one of the leaders to attract talent and bring talent in and bring them to Canada, even if um, employees don't want to move to Canada. Many do. You know, the mm-hmm. research that we've funded has showed that people do want to move to Canada. But at the same time, right now, everyone is afraid to move around. So we could be hiring now. We could be having people working remotely very efficiently for our companies. And then as the pandemic subsides and, and people start moving again, it could be a great play for bringing more immigration to Canada. So we're optimistic because all of our companies are growing, but you know, there's no rest for the wicked in the sense that we need to keep fighting to against the foreign companies that are really trying to, you know, dominate the uh, labor market in Canada right now. Well, what percentage of the role should, should government step in versus those individual companies? It affects the bottom line. But when you look at the competition across the globe, because as you're mentioning, uh, this could be any corner of the world where these workers are going. Uh, how important is it that the government, you know, work on, you know, a tax implication uh, program to make it easier or just make it more attractive? Well, I think it's about supporting the companies that are investing already. So a company like ours, we probably spend about 20% on R&D every year. We benefit from some of the government subsidies. And because we're in the knowledge-based economy, most of that R&D is hiring individuals to do work. So we, we don't, you know, it's more about the support and then which employees will qualify for that. So right now, um, you only get compensated for Canadian-based employees that are working for you. So perhaps the ability to include remote workers at the same rate of, uh, you know, of our deductions. Because every, you know, to remain innovative, to develop our companies, to hold on to our intellectual property as we grow and remain a Canadian company is going to move very fast and furious. And in Canada, you know, each company is doing their part. So. The government really has a lot of the mechanisms that it could use to support us. It just has to really focus on taking this, sitting down at the table with companies like ours and saying, you know, what do, what do we have already that will continue to support you as you scale? And, uh, and it's very, it's a, you know, it's a unique proposition that companies like the tech sector has because we are growing. Our threat isn't about being able to grow. Our threat is not getting sold to a, a company and not being Canadian after we hit a certain size. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we could be this, one, of the, one of the drivers for growth for the future of Canada, but at the same time, is our government want to sit down with us and help us remain as Canadian companies? 
Adam, which parts of the tech industry are you seeing us as Canadians really start to take a lead in? Well, you know, the the buzz for a while was artificial intelligence. The government put a lot of money into that. We saw that their approach may have not been the best way in terms of supporting specific companies. Um, you know, the the um, clean tech sector, where you know we were a resource based uh, um, country, a lot of a lot of companies have come out of the um, you know that space, looking at how can we create clean solutions. So there's a lot of interesting clean tech work being done. Um, my industry, I'm in the, I work in the market research industry, and we do, you know, it's about collection of data. Data collection is a huge growth area, and there's a lot of great Canadian companies that were doing great work in Canada, but now we're all stepping into the international space. So those are two areas that I, I'm very bullish about, and, uh, and, you know, obviously I'm in one of them, so I'm going to be very optimistic about it. You find that a lot of, uh, you know, people in your uh, same uh, line of work, people in the tech industries, you're coming together because this is a battle that you all could benefit from. Uh, So individually, it could be a case of not being, uh, you know, David versus Goliath, but Goliath versus Goliath. Yeah, but in about 2015, I became part of a, a new organization called the Council of Canadian Innovators, and it was created by John Ruffalo, who's a venture capitalist, and Jim Balsillie, who's the former CEO of BlackBerry. And what they recognized was, you know, there were the companies like the, the big tech companies like Google and Facebook that were coming into Canada that were having huge influence over policy and the support of government. And individual companies like ours that were the growing future of Canada weren't, didn't have that voice in government to be able to support the, you know, what's the impact of policies that they're, that they're implementing and it brought us together. And now we're about 140 CEOs across the country that have worked together that appreciate the importance of dialogue with government and want to be heard as a group. But what the, the interesting thing about us all are we are all growing technology companies. We all recognize that we want to remain in Canada and we're, we want to sit down and work with the government to say, how do we create a, the long-term economic prosperity of Canada that we would all love to see and not just let our intellectual property get developed here and funded by government sources and then simply get sold off to uh, foreign companies at no cost yeah. to uh, them. Yeah. Oh, it's a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for your perspective. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. That is Adam Froman, CEO and co-founder of Delvinia. You can find more at delvinia.com.